Today's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. Please stand for the reading of God's word. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all aside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand and, said, and he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Ordinarily, um, you would see Rob up here. But um, from time to time, uh, the elders get to uh, deliver the sermon, and uh, today it is my turn. So um, uh, for those of you who have not met, uh, my name is Tim. I'm one of the elders here at New Hope. Um, I'm a lay elder, meaning I have another job, so be gracious. But uh, before we delve into this story, as we continue our story in Mark, uh, let's pray. 
Father God, uh, as we um, go into this word, your word, Father, we pray that um, it is not my words, but rather your spirit that works in the hearts of all that are in this room. In Jesus' Lord, let me pray. Amen. So again, we are in the book of Mark, and we continue with this story where Jesus is showing who he is, uh, what he is, and what the gospel is about throughout the whole book of Mark. And in these verses that Kathy just read to us, uh, we see Jesus leave the demon-possessed man on one side of the Sea of Galilee and travel to the other side, uh, that is, uh, from the Gentile side over to the uh, Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. So at this point, uh, the word has spread about Jesus and what he has done for many people. Uh, healing the paralyzed, healing lepers, the sick, calming a storm, casting out demons we saw last week, and raising from the dead, you see in other uh, gospel uh, accounts as well. Now, you can imagine um, this, as well as his teaching itself, has made a lot of noise. And so those in high places in religious circles and in government, uh, those in power, in other words, have noticed. But also anyone with ailments or has been suffering from something have also noticed. Maybe Jesus can do this for me. Maybe he can heal this for me. Oh, here's a possible solution from what I'm going through. That may have been going through people who might have been suffering at this time. So the passage starts off with the count of uh, Jairus, who is a synagogue leader. But then it pivots back to a, a woman, a sick woman, and then back to Jairus again. And this contrast back and forth is pretty jarring. But it helps us kind of feel the intensity, the, the chaotic intensity of the scene. But Mark didn't use this as some sort of literary tactic. Uh, this is just what happened. In fact, uh, in the books of Luke and Matthew, these same accounts exist. And so three of the four gospel books document this series of events. And even though they were written at different times and in different, by different people in different places, they all describe the story in very similar ways. But what's remarkable is that even though this is just what happened, because of the story itself, we're led and compelled to make comparisons between the two people that Jesus comes in contact with, contrasting the two people and their experiences with Jesus. In other words, I think the Bible is saying something important to us here. There's something that God wants us to see here. So let's start with Jairus. So Jairus is described, again, as one of the rulers of the synagogue, in other words, he's a church leader. So he was also probably a Pharisee and in charge of the day-to-day -day activities of the church. And you can look around. We had Pastor Rob actually have all the teachers stand up. And, but you can also see elders, deacons, ministry team leaders, praise team leaders, 
um, care group leaders, discipleship leaders, all these folks in this church are leaders of the church. So he's somebody akin to that. And this time in history, in this region, the culture was very much centered around the synagogue. The cadence of the community revolved around the calendar of the Jewish faith. So as a synagogue leader, Jairus would have had an important place in society, very much known and accepted by the people, you know, a trusted figure. And we also know he had a wife and a family and a young daughter, which we'll get to in a little bit. Now, in contrast, there is this woman, and she doesn't even have a name. Her identity is ascribed with her condition. She is known as the woman that has had a discharge for 12 years. Now, it would be fair to say that this condition really consumed her and consumed her identity. No name, no occupation, no family, lineage, or anything is really given to us in this account. Just her all-encompassing condition. Now, she has had a discharge of blood for 12 years. It's hard to imagine what that may be like. Uh, and on top of that, as described in, in verse 26, she tried many physicians, spent all her money, and her condition got even worse. And we know that from what we talked about in this part of the region, which is Jewish and this culture, anyone bleeding is considered unclean, and unclean cannot, un people, unclean people cannot be touched or cannot touch without making another unclean. So we can safely assume that she did not have any meaningful contact or unmitigated interaction with another soul for over a decade. No family get-togethers, no social gatherings, no church gatherings. She was not even welcomed in the synagogue for 12 years. Now, I imagine that during the past few years uh, with the pandemic lockdown, we have seen some new words into our vocabulary. You know, revenge travel. <laughs> and we, you know, we were disconnected with our families. We missed birthdays. We missed holidays, get-togethers. And all these things happened. People were frantically trying to travel and get to actually have relationships uh, with their loved ones. And that was just over a couple of years. Now imagine 12. And this is what she was going through. For, so for the last 12 years, this woman is isolated, physically suffering, socially suffering, and financially destitute. So in contrast then, you got Jairus and you got this bleeding woman, completely different from one another, different genders. This woman was unclean, maybe even an outcast. Whereas Jairus was recognized and accepted as a leader in a society, the woman was unwelcomed in religious worship. We have a leader in religious worship. And the woman suffered broken relationships due to prolonged separation from friends, family, her community, 
and she was about to break completely. Whereas Jairus had a united family, but on the cusp of being broken himself. So this woman was bleeding financially, physically draining for 12 years, year after year deteriorating. And meanwhile, Jairus is raising a beloved daughter for 12 years, year after year, seeing her grow. And this woman is suffering within her body. And Jairus is suffering externally, outside of his body. So completely on other ends of the spectrum. But they have something very sharply in common. They both needed someone to help them in a very dire, desperate situation. So let's talk about what these are. So Jairus has a 12-year-old daughter. And he loved his daughter. In Mark, she is described as little, but in other translations, she's also described as darling or dear or beloved, and those translations can be kind of interchangeable as well. And we also know she's an only daughter, and she's suffering. Now, Jairus is seeking Jesus, and this was a last-ditch effort by this loving father. And when you get sick, you don't just wait around. You go to a physician and you seek a remedy. And so it seems reasonable to think that Jairus exhausted all these other options to get his daughter well, but has failed. His beloved daughter is now deathly ill. So time is of the essence and Jairus is desperate. This is a life-threatening emergency situation. Meanwhile, the woman is clearly in an urgent situation as well. And maybe it's kind of a different type of an emergency than Jairus' daughter, but still an emergency. Again, if you're suffering like she was for so many years, there's not a minute to spare. And in fact, you can tell her her desperation because she wasn't even supposed to be near people let alone a rabbi, and she wasn't supposed to touch other people in that crowd, let alone a rabbi. But in her desperation, she actually was there. She was touching, and her daring and her desperation is what made her come to Jesus. So both Jairus and the woman are in desperate situations here, and they both need immediate relief. They both they both need immediate healing. They're at their low points. And they both knew where to go to get that solved. They heard about Jesus, like others have as well at this time, as we talked about, and they thought, this could be it. This could be the solution to my problem. So that's the scene kind of described at this point. So we can pause a little bit and think about A couple of questions. Is there something in our lives that requires immediate attention? That we are looking for a solution to a problem? Or even broader, why are you here today? What are you looking for? Is there something that you're struggling with? And and lastly, have you heard of Jesus 
And did you think that Jesus could help you with these struggles and problems and circumstances? I mean, obviously, this is a rhetorical question. So these are things to kind of roll around in your heart and your head as we walk through uh, this scenario again. So again, just we're, we have two people in vastly different, from vastly different contexts and circumstances, both begging Jesus on their knees to solve a problem for them. And in one sense, you can say, hey, they would have come to anyone to solve their problems. Or they could have come to anyone if they knew that their objectives were going to be met. Probably. But they heard about Jesus, and even at this surface level, believed, and they came to him. Very simple. But here's the remarkable thing. Jesus heard them and responded to them. As Jairus asks earnestly, he says to the woman, um, I'm sorry, as Jairus asks earnestly, Jesus responds and goes with him. And he says to the woman, daughter, your faith has made you well. In each account, Jesus responds to their faith. Not even a fully formed faith, but a faith nonetheless. They may not have known much about Jesus at all. And their faith, by any kind of assumption, is probably at a surface level. All they did was hear rumors and reports about Jesus, and they came. So this comes to our first key takeaway, key observation in this passage, is that we can come to him even with our small faith. Everyone, from one end of the spectrum to another, from the woman to Jairus, can come to him even with small faith. And why is that? Why do you think that's even possible? They may not be learned people. They didn't know the Bible, potentially. They didn't know Jesus, certainly. Why? It's because it's not about our faith, but rather who we have faith in that matters. A quote from Charles Spurgeon says, Our life is found in looking unto Jesus, not in looking to our own faith. By faith, all things become possible to us, yet the power is not in the faith, but in the God whom, upon whom faith relies. And this is our um, beloved Tim Keller quote, which says, and in a little bit of a different way, the same message, it is not the strength of your face, faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. So again, it doesn't matter how small your faith is, but how powerful God is in whom you have that faith. So again, we ask again, can you identify with this? Does this resonate with you? 
Perhaps, again, you're here at church today seeking a solution to a problem. Perhaps you're going through something and recognize that you need some help. Well, if this is you, you're in the right place. Don't worry or fear that your faith is not strong enough or deep enough or you don't know enough about the Bible or about Jesus or the gospel or what church is about. You're welcome here. We're so glad you are here. There's no need to feel self-conscious about your level of faith or how church works or any of those things. Ultimately, we see that even with small faith, we are wholeheartedly accepted by Christ. And we see here that Jesus takes our small faith. And as uh, Brian talked about in this sermon a few weeks ago, he takes that mustard seed-like faith. He passed it around. It was tiny, right? And he takes us in. But, as this, his, his sermon explained, it's not all. So let's, let's see what happens next. So first, Jairus again. Jairus, once he gets Jesus to come with him, things are going well. You know, he's, he's got his, his, his mission to go get Jesus, who is the miracle worker, to come with him to his house. So his plan is working out. But then, we see here that Jesus stops in an emergency, in a desperate situation where time is of the essence, Jesus stops. Now, if he's, if Jairus is anything like the dads that I know in this congregation, uh, Jairus had a plan and he had a timeline and he was super logical about it and thought it out to the T. And uh, it had to be adhered to. <laughs> I can identify with this. But we can only assume of what Jairus thought. He, but I think it's probably safe to assume that this was not his plan to get interrupted in the middle of an emergency. And what's the interruption? This woman. This interruption uh, is instigated by this bleeding woman as she touches Jesus' garment and is healed miraculously immediately. And Jesus gets, uh, she gets the healing she desperately needed and wanted. And so this interruption is happening to this woman and Jairus is actually witnessing this very thing. But for the woman, what an amazing feeling this must have been. She probably... I've never felt so well in her recollection. After waiting for so long to be healed in an instant must have been a miraculous, unbelievable thing for her. But even for her, in her plan, we see that her elation does not last long. We know that she wasn't supposed to be there. She wasn't supposed to touch anybody, and she wasn't supposed to touch a rabbi. But in her desperation, she thought that she could touch and get out of there. But we see here that she did not have a very good exit plan. <laughs> or at least she didn't think that Jesus could detect her at the ends of the garments in the back. She thought she could touch, but she get what she needed to do and go. 
But we see in, uh, in the passage that Jesus turns around and puts G- and the woman in a very uncomfortable position. He says, who touched my garments? And she was terrified of what was happening. Now, just to put in context again, the penalty for an unclean woman touching another in a crowd, especially to offend and touch a rabbi, was very steep. She probably, realistically, feared for her life. Now, that's the situation that the woman was in. Now, let's go back to Jairus again. Now, we're not told exactly how long that interruption was, but Jairus is interrupted, and not only that, during this painful interruption, he gets confirmation, and it's devastating. His beloved daughter is now deceased, dead. Now, what do you think is racing through Jairus' head? I'm sure it's a flood of emotions, thinking he didn't get there in time. Or Jesus failed her, that he failed her. And the woman interrupted us. Needless to say, that his plan to save her does not work the way that he had wished. So we have to ask ourselves at this point, why would Jesus allow Jairus' daughter to just die? Why would he not just go there, knowing it's, it's an emergency, timely situation? Why would Jesus not just, on the other hand, give the woman what she got and let her go? And in fact, we can even ask broader questions, not specific to this scenario, but why can't God just give us what we want? If God is all-powerful, all-loving, all-generous, as we generally think that he is, why does God not allow us to get our own way? In fact, he could let us have our own way and our own plan, He could allow us to get what we want, our deepest desires, our own pursuits realized. Although he is able, he does not. And we see that it's not in just this passage. Throughout all of the Bible, again and again, we see this, that God interrupts plans that people have. And it's not like they're bad plans. They're decent, okay-sounding plans. Abraham did not plan to be childless and heirless into his old age. Wanting to have a child earnestly is not a bad thing. Joseph did not plan on being sold as a slave into Egypt. Not wanting that is not a bad thing. And Moses did not plan to be driven out of Egypt only to have to return to it decades later. And Ruth didn't plan to become a widow in a foreign land. Earnestly planning, wanting, praying for these things is not inherently bad things. Now we know, as we just talked about, Jairus did not get what he wanted as his only daughter dies. And we know that's not a bad thing either. And the woman got what she wanted initially as well. 
but couldn't escape. That was not her plan. So suffering, bad things happening, plans breaking, hopes dashed, wishes unfulfilled. We see here that Jesus could have allowed all these wants and wishes granted, but he does not. Jesus had other plans. He has a grander plan. Abraham ultimately had a child and began a whole nation under God's promise. Joseph eventually would go on to save that nation by becoming a powerful man of influence in Egypt. Moses would go on to save those same people out of slavery. In Egypt. From Egypt. And Ruth would continue that line. All throughout history, by allowing outcomes that were not in these people's plans, he's able to fulfill his plan and fulfill his promises. And you may say, well, that's great for God. (laughs) But we've got to remember, it's not just those grand plans. He also changes our plans as well, which is our second key observation in this passage that he will give us what we need, not necessarily what we want. Like a parent keeping their toddler from danger, Jesus sees broken situations, a sinful-filled world, a fractured world with suffering and sadness and gives us what we actually need, not necessarily what we want. So the question is, what do we actually ultimately need? So let's continue on the story. After, uh, first the woman, uh, after she touches him, and she's well, uh, look what Jesus does, okay? Jesus defies all logic, convention. His disciples are incredibly confused at this point, right? You know, in the crowd that's around him, he's looking for one person that touched him at the end of his garments. It doesn't make any sense. And then, but she knows. And with fear and trembling, she knows Jesus is looking for her. And she's compelled to tell the whole truth. She gives up hiding or being unnoticed or unseen. We see that in this scenario, he pursues her. Jesus pursues her. And she has to open up to him. Now let's look at Jairus. Even for Jairus, we see him losing heart. After all, again, our logic, our reasoning about what a reaction is with a daughter passing away would be to lose heart. In fact, you know, they talk about mourners and um, actually these mourners are paid to mourn at funerals. So you don't pay a mourner unless that person is actually dead. So these are confirmation, logical confirmations that that, uh, his daughter is actually dead. What does Jesus say? He says, do not fear, only believe. And we see Jesus, unfazed by conventional logic, 
social norms, the comments around him laughing at him, and he continues to go to the house of Jairus in the midst of mourning and wailing. And he takes Jairus and his wife into the child's room and performs a miracle. And we see that um, he actually talks to her. He actually refers to her as little girl. He talks to the parents. You can imagine the intimate scene that's in there. Absolutely amazing. Jesus takes Jairus and his wife into his room, intimate, close, so personal. Jairus and his wife will never forget what happened in this room. As his daughter, as their daughter, is raised from the dead. So we can ask ourselves, why does Jesus make us go through this? Why does Jesus pursue the woman? Why does Jesus insist on going to Jairus into this back room with this deceased child? We see here that Jesus is demanding intimate moments with us. He wants that interpersonal connection with each and every one of us. But it's not a show of force. It's not cajoling or bullying. In fact, listen to this. He listens to the woman's whole story, engages with her, knows her. And in the small room, again, you can see how intimate this is. It's away from the crowds. It's away from all the noise. It's away from all those things that are, that are having a very personal moment. He's absolutely gentle, absolutely approachable. Now, we can say, in the beginning, these people knew of Jesus. And after what happens, they know Jesus. They knew him as a healer. They can get things from him. They just had that knowledge. But here, Jesus gives them much more than just meeting that immediate emergency need. They get Jesus instead, which is our next observation in this passage. We may be looking for something, but what we need is someone. Both of these people came with their small faith, their little knowledge of who Jesus is and how he fits into their world and their agenda. But Jesus does not allow them to stay where they are. Jesus does not allow that mustard seed to stay a mustard seed. That's dead. He makes it grow. Jesus initiates a personal connection with these people and reveals himself when they are at their lowest. When we can no longer point to the things in our lives that give us meaning, that we can take credit for, our strengths, our qualities, our power, our experience, when we finally put all those things apart because they fall apart and they will fall apart, when we finally concede and are humbled and we give up control, can we actually see who's actually in control? When we see that we are feeble, he connects with us and reveals himself to us intimately. Jesus uh, pursues and, encounter, and encounters them, makes them experience him. 
these people had to come to their ends of themselves to come to Jesus. And why do you think that is? Jesus knows that our ultimate joy is not getting our agendas met our earthly plans fulfilled. Jesus knows our ultimate joy is an intimate relationship with him and to depend solely on him for our fulfillment. So John Piper put it this way, redemption, justification, reconciliation, all these have to happen. They are the act of love, but the goal of love that makes those acts loving is that we be with him and we see his jaw-dropping glory and be astounded. And those moments we forget ourselves and we see and savor all that God is for us in him. What Pastor Piper is saying is when we remember what he did for us, we're able to come to him. When we remember that he died on the cross in a perfect act of justice and mercy and love and reconciles us to God, we can forget ourselves, be humbled by his grace and be strengthened by his love and be at peace and complete joy. Our joy is not filled with and sustained by our own plans, our earthly or fleshly desires being met. Our joy is only sustainably fulfilled when we completely trust and rely and have intimate relationship with God. That's what we're made for. The only, and only that can give us complete, absolute joy. So we see this passage, we see what Jesus is doing, we see that he's bringing these people to him. So here are some takeaways about how we should be reacting to this story. First off, as we see in the very beginning part of the story, come to him. He meets you where you are. He will, yet, we know that he won't let you stay there. Now, you may be in a situation like the woman, or Jairus, or his daughter, or his family. And if you are, please reach out to any of our elders or our church leaders. We're ready to listen and help and pray for you. And for the, those of you who have not accepted Christ as Savior, know that he wants you. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to save you. You won't have to wait for an emergency situation. You don't have to have complete knowledge of him or of faith or how churches work or any of those things. Don't be afraid and believe that Jesus is calling you. Even a little faith, a little small faith is enough to come to him and receive his healing freedom, salvation, and him. And for those who already trust in him, we may be frustrated because our plans are not working out as we had hoped, or that something is getting in the way of our wishes. Well, 
counted as potentially an act of love and grace. A loving act as Jesus, our shepherd, tends to us, the sheep, his flock, in the right directions, maybe sometimes against our wishes. Consider it a gracious correction, like a father corrects a son. As it says in Proverbs chapter 3, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be wary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. And in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And it continues, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But rather it yields the peaceful fruits of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So the takeaway here is, don't hold so tight to your plans. Remember again what Jesus said to Jairus, do not fear, only believe. Because he is much more able and wise and sovereign to our needs than we can possibly fathom. Trust in him, rely on him, be open to that intimate relationship with him. So you can ask, okay, what does this intimate relationship with Jesus look like? And we'd see again how Jesus revealed himself to Jairus and the woman in pretty remarkable, miraculous ways. Should we be expecting that? Maybe not, but we don't need to. As we've already seen this account already recorded in the Bible itself. We can live it out in the Word. We can read about Jairus and the woman. And you can read about the experiences of others in the past and what they reveal about Jesus, God and the Spirit. We just went through in our discipleship groups, Elijah, and what he went through. And we went through Romans and how Paul thinks about various things. These accounts are written that we may be witness to them. Just like Jairus and the woman, we are witnesses to Jesus and what he is like. So here's a couple of practical applications that I will absolutely bore you with, Rob. <laughs> uh, first is, as we're just talking about, read and know the Bible in the proper context, which means you have to read it and ask questions to uh, those people around you who you trust who's also reading the Bible on a regular basis and that are lifelong students of the Bible. Now, be warned, you can make the Bible say anything you want. There's a lot of false teachers out there that make the Bible say what they want. Many have misquoted and abused Scripture for their evil. And when, but one way to protect against that is to ask a few questions as you're walking through it with brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, if you are reading, it's not just, hey, let me get through this chapter, that chapter, but rather ask some questions like, how does this relate to the gospel? Or how does this fit into the whole arc of the gospel? 
And how does this tie into Jesus and how he saves his people? And internally too, what does this reveal about me? Remember, this is a relationship. It's a two-way relationship and you're reading about Jesus and you have to be open to another person's correction of you. So the question you have to ask yourself as you're reading is, how, what does this passage reveal about me? What is there anything that I need to confess? Is there any sin that's in my heart? Is there any covetousness? Is there anything that I need to confess God to and give it to him? Is there anything I should be asking God for? Is there anything that I should be praising God for? So as you're reading, it's an, it's an intimate engagement with the creator of the universe. That should be an amazing uh, activity, task, not a laborious one. Secondly, we need to connect with our church community. You can't do these things in isolation. You have to connect to those people who love Jesus through church, through small care, uh, small and uh, groups and care groups, through discipleship groups, and serving in various capacities within our church. And you'll see much more richly how God is working in the lives of those around you in church. This quality is essential. You'll see and be bear witness to how lives are changed by God at your local church. And so when we take our member covenant, we always say, if you find yourself not at New Hope, connect to another God-fearing local church. It is essential. Third, witness. And share your testimony. Let others know the joy you found. Let them know how you're going. It's not perfect package that you're presenting to others, but say, hey, this is what I'm struggling with. We know that we are healed as we confess to one another. We know that spirit works in that way. So witness, talk about your struggles and your faith as you're going through it. There's a very powerful way that Jesus works in our lives, in our hearts. And finally, pray. Regular conversations with your Savior is a necessary communication channel for you. When the woman was pursued and cornered, she confessed. She told him her whole story, and it was listened to. And when Jairus went home, he followed and witnessed what had surely been amazing words with Jesus that they were able to exchange. And his daughter was raised to life again. Don't just pray in times of distress, though. On a regular, regular basis. When you're having conversations with him, you'll find that he moves in ways that you never thought was possible. So, again, praying on a regular basis. These are our ways of knowing how, uh, knowing Jesus and having an intimate relationship with him. Now, this is not a formula. This is not how you get Jesus. These are just some suggestions. And in fact, 
If you're, again, going through certain things or you find it confusing what I'm talking about, uh, please come to any of the elders, your care group leaders, etc., and ask. So um, let's conclude here. Let's see here. A couple of takeaways, again. Just a reminder, Jesus accepts us where we are, even with our small faith. But he doesn't allow us to stay there. He pursues us, changes our plans, and while we don't always get what we want, we know that we get what we need and that he is trustworthy and he is sovereign. And we know, third, that he pursues us because he wants to have an intimate relationship with us. Because he knows that our joy, our ultimate joy, is being with him. So again, we see Jairus and the woman walking through a process, an engagement with Jesus, and we can learn so much about it. And that's why I think that it's in all, or it's in three of the gospel accounts. My view of what the takeaway is are these things. And so hopefully, again, as we see the beauty of the Bible, the beauty of the gospel coming alive into these stories, uh, let's not just read them as stories, but actually something that we can apply into our own lives. Let us pray. Father God, Thank you for these words. Thank you for these accounts. And thank you for um, this very famous story that we just walked through. Uh, let it not just be a story that sits idle in a book, but rather a compelling testimony and witness that we will recall back into and encourage and be encouraged by as we ourselves go through life's struggles in this broken world. Father, we want you. We want Jesus. We want to have an intimate relationship with you. And so we ask that you help us and you continue to take that mustard seed-like faith that we have and to grow it in your will. In Jesus' Lord's name we pray. Amen.